something that makes you want to pee. Yeah, I got a tongue. I got some tongue twisters in mine too. So good luck. I got some titty twisters in here. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Let's do our first take. Welcome into the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. This is a deep dive companion podcast to the German television series Babylon Berlin. I'm Dan Fenner, and I'm joined as always by a woman who gets amorous at the mere smell of ammonium carbonate, Leslie Leak. Hey, friends. Each episode of the podcast will cover one episode of the show. We'll give you the down low on the plot, the characters, and the history. But be warned, the DL Presents is not for the languid of mind or the young in age. This podcast and the media that it covers is BAFA. By adults for adults. But if you're ready to bond with your date over a bloated dead body or hide in your lover's sheets while he talks to his gassy neighbor, then you're ready for the DL. So don your lederhosen. And drink your libations. Deranged Lutherans. Having dangerous liaisons. Let's dive in. That's where you have a sip of your limoncello. Today's episode sponsored by Homemade Hooch. <laughs> I love the word hooch. That's a good H word. Ah, just a sip. Ooh! Have you heard the song? What song? Have you heard the song that everybody's singing about you? No. Leslie Leak, Leslie Leak. She's a fiance and she's a freak. Leslie Leak, Leslie Leak. <laughs> you're, you're so impressive to me. Something, you just something. Her eyebrows are on fleek. Oh, shit. Thank you. Uh, this is literally how I live my life every day. It's just singing little ditties to Cam and my kitties. Oh! oh we are really bad. Leslie, we're sitting down for episode six, but there has been an episode in your life that we have to announce. Burr, 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 burr. We got big announcements. Big announcements. We're hungover today. I am hungover. But hair to the dog drinking some limoncello. Hair of the dog. Hair of the dog. I believe that's short for hair of the dog that bit you. Okay. But that's going to have to be like her beast in one day because what the fuck does that mean? We, yeah, well, <laughs> that's for a separate podcast where we disambiguate strange sayings. Yeah. Yeah, we're hungover because both of us were at a surprise engagement party. Leslie got engaged. For me. Last <laughs> night. And right after the proposal, there was an engagement party. Uh, it was big. It was loud. It was late at night. I got home at three and I was not sober, but uh, I'm feeling good now. I'm feeling good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm feeling great. Yeah. I'm ready to record episode six, but I I just, you know, it's the big news. We got to put it out yeah, there at the top yeah, of the show. Yeah. Exciting stuff happening here on The DL Presents. When I think back on episode six, I have more and more respect for the episode the more I watch it because the writers and the directors are still building on the plot lines that they've created or opened in previous episodes. They do a really good job of continuing on those plot lines, but they also, in this episode in particular, balance all that plot action out with little glimpses of day in the life of some of the characters that we haven't gotten to see before. Yeah, this is the first episode with like like a slice of life scene that takes place in full sunlight, for instance. <laughs> yeah. First time I've ever wanted to like just go hang out in Berlin. Yeah. 
Definitely at Lake Wanasee. Wanasee? Wanasee. We've got to say at the top of this episode, if it wasn't abundantly clear from our previous episodes, that we do not speak German, and our pronunciation of German proper nouns will continue to be abhorrent. If you have any advice or you do know how to correctly pronounce anything we've said on this podcast, please email us because we want to know. We're not Philistines. We don't know how to pronounce it, but we do want to know how to pronounce it. If you can point us in the right direction to someone saying it correctly, or heck, even record yourself and just send it to us. We would love it. Send it to the DLPresents at gmail.com. I want to know how to pronounce stuff. It has been pointed out to me that the river that flows through Berlin that I have been referring to as the Spree River is actually pronounced Spree. Spree River. Something like that. And a lovely young woman from Hamburg explained to me that what I've been referring to as the Kreuzberg neighborhood of Berlin is actually pronounced Krautsburg. Okay, that was great. Great pronunciation, I think. What do I know? Correct. I think. I think it's good pronunciation, but Krautsburg neighborhood. And that wedding is pronounced wedding. We'll keep, we'll work on it. We'll try. I promise. Yeah. Episode six also answers a question that we may not have even asked, which is, will they or won't they bone Garion and Elizabeth Benka? Didn't see that one coming. Can I get some horns for Elizabeth Benka? Meow, 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 meow. She's getting hers. She got it. I didn't see it coming. Love it, though. Yeah, love it. And I think this is going out on a limb, but when has that ever stopped me? I think it helps to answer a question I did ask during Will They or Won't They Bone, which is, did Elizabeth and Kartikov bone? I thought that they did, and I'm going to use this as further evidence for Elizabeth Benka's proclivity to at least entertain the notion of sleeping with one of her tenants. I'm not slut-shaming Elizabeth Benka. She can do whatever she wants. I'm just saying she's a woman who recognizes a handsome man and recognizes an opportunity, and she is willing and able to put those two together. I think her and Kartikov might have got it on. Dan, I have a question for you. At this point in time in episode six, are you ride or die for any character? I'm ride or die for Charlotte Ritter. Same. Anyone else? I'm an Elizabeth Cottlebach fan. Same! I'm, sorry, Elizabeth and Samuel Cottlebach. Like, yes. everyone in the boarding house. So yeah. I guess that includes Gary. Everybody at Elizabeth's house, I'm for it. Yeah, we're so on the same wavelength. Didn't rehearse that, but I'm ride or die for Charlotte, Elizabeth, and Samuel Cottlebach. Yeah, I like Thick Cop. Yeah. But I wouldn't say ride or die, because no, he's, no, no. he's he's kind of an asshole in this episode, really. Yeah. They, they finally have the confrontation. Garion and Thick Cop finally have the confrontation that Garion doesn't want Thick Cop to have his nose all up in his business, and that Thick Cop doesn't trust Garion because he thinks he's a mole within the police office who's spying on Thick Cop. And they just fight it out, like, slap each other in the alleyway. I can't wait to talk about that, because I love it, but... It's it's an interesting scene. I don't remember on first watch Thick Cop being such a complete dick by pulling out that vial of Garion's medicine. I don't either. And making it absolutely clear, frankly, that Charlotte Ritter is working with him, which is kind of a sloppy move on his part, but yeah. maybe that's what he, he wanted to care. do. Yeah, he doesn't care. And it's if anything, problem. maybe he's trying to undermine the cooperative relationship between Charlotte and Garion because he does see them from the open window of his car in Alexanderplatz, and he doesn't like that. No, but also repeat all of that when we get to it in the plot synopsis. Speaking of plot synopsis, Leslie, do you hear that sound? Do you know what that music means? Does it mean it's time to go to the plump and watch Hertha BSC versus Holstein Kiel? Nope. It means it's time for the plot synopsis of Babylon Berlin, episode six. In the cold open of episode six, once again, we are joined by Alexei Kartikov, this time having his legs set by Dr. Schmidt while being questioned by the Armenian. 
At first, Kartikov's in a lot of pain while Dr. Schmidt is kind of toying with this ankle a little bit. And all the while, the Armenian is questioning Kartikov about this gold that Kartikov mentioned to the Armenian in a previous episode. Where is the gold? Where did it come from? And what do you want it for? And to me, it's clear that the Armenian just wants to know, is this claim that there's some gold out there substantiated? Is it worth his time to pursue it further? And finding out that it's Sorokin's gold apparently is enough for the Armenian to sign on. One thing I really like about this scene is that while the Armenian is questioning Kardakov, Kardakov's in pain, he's moaning. At one point he screams when Dr. Schmidt twists his ankle back into place. The Armenian doesn't miss a beat and just keeps questioning him with really no concern for his well-being. But we know, in fact, he does have concern for Kardakov's well-being. Kardakov's leg makes such interesting sounds. You mentioned this in episode two, Leslie. The Foley artists really bravo on that bone crunching. We love it. (laughs) So the cold open ends and the credits roll. And then after the credits, we get our classic circle wipe opening on to Gary and Rath's sleepy face as he wakes up in the morning. Garion is woken abruptly by his neighbor in Benka's flats, Cottlebach, Samuel Cottlebach, who's shoving a newspaper in his face, asking him a bunch of rapid questions. Cottlebach wants to know about the officer who claims to have been shot during the May Day protests. Now, we know that this officer actually got shot by his own son with his own service pistol. But Cottlebach seems to think that something's fishy about it and wants to see if Garion will share some info. Garion's not right away on board with that. No, not only is he a little bit disoriented because he just woke up, Cuddlebuck is invasive. He's just snooping around Garion's room, walking around wide awake. He's had like five espresso shots by now, I'm sure. After watching the episode two or three times, it's clear that Cuddlebuck knows someone else is in the bed with Garion. Cuddlebuck takes a look around the room and asks him like, hey, did I catch you at a bad time? Garion says yes, and Cuddlebuck just lights a cigarette and starts asking him questions anyway. He doesn't care who's under those blankets. He knows someone is, and that's not what he's here for. He wants info. We don't find out who's under the blanket until the end of this scene. In the meantime, Cuddlebuck's rattling off his questions and sort of working out a negotiation about what it's going to take from him for Garion to give him the information that he wants. He says, yeah, people like me from my town on the Danube, Vienna, Austria probably, and people from your place on the Rhine River, talking about Garion being from Cologne, people like that should help each other. Folks here in Berlin don't seem to understand that, as if no one will give Cuddlebuck the time of day. But he offers Garion tickets to the Plump to go see a football match between Hertha BSC and Holstein Kiel. The Plump, just so you know, is the nickname for the soccer stadium. Stay tuned to the Lecker Basin for more on the Plump. Kottelbach eventually leaves the room, and Elizabeth Benka pulls down the covers for the first time. And we know now that Garion came home wicked late the previous night, where he tried to pick up and take home Charlotte, and instead came home and found his way into bed with Elizabeth Benka. And I'm going to be honest, I did not see that one coming. There's a lot in this scene. Kottelbach speaks very quickly and gives a lot of information that isn't important necessarily to understand the whole plot of the show, but it is so interesting for the time and place that the show takes place. So first of all, he comes in speaking five different languages, which is interesting. I believe it's like Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, and then English. Something like that. So he's a well-read man. We learned in a previous episode that he speaks Russian and reads Russian. And apparently he's multilingual and travels a lot. That's really cool. Kottelbach also thrusts that newspaper into Garion's face, and it's only on camera for a second. But if you pause, you can see that the newspaper is Der Tag, which is German for the day. This would be a right-wing reactionary newspaper. 
newspaper that would be circulating around. It's akin to the Breitbart News of 1929 Berlin. And that's why it has such a pro-police article. What's probably most important to point out about this scene is that when Kattelbach comes in, he sits down and rips ass. He has a toot! He's oh. trying to get information from Garen. Garen says, I didn't even know that officer. He's not in my section. I can't tell you anything. And Kattelbach's like, well, should any of that information come your way, <laughs> just send it to me. Is that our third fart of the show? Third fart of season one. Let's go with third fart, yes. This also sets up one of the two morality plot lines of the rest of season one. The first one in this scene is that Garion has been asked to lie about the May Day protests in order to protect the image of law enforcement. Now, he's not from Berlin. The Berlin PD isn't necessarily where his allegiance is. He knows that lying is wrong and seems to be conflicted about it in his very Catholic way. That being the second plot line, the morality plot line of this episode that will get to later when Garion goes to confession. The next scene brings us to the Lake Wansi Academic Rowing Club. This is the date. This is the lake date that Charlotte and Stefan discussed in episode 5 when Charlotte walked in on Stefan going through Thick Cop's desk. This is why Charlotte couldn't go home with Garion the night before. She said she already had plans, and apparently that means not sleeping, but going all the way to southwest Berlin to Lake Wansi. This is a long scene, and a lot happens, but it's one of the rare sort of day-in-the-life scenes that we get in Babylon Berlin. And it's also one of the rare sort of sunny, happy-looking scenes. I describe it as like a happy-looking scene. All the rest look drab. Yeah, in a crime noir first season, (laughs) this is one of the only sunshine scenes. There's a lot to cover here, though, Leslie, so let's get started. Who, what, where, when, why, what happens? When this scene at the lake opens, we see Charlotte and Stefan. Stefan is either writing or drawing in his journal and looking up at the sky, sort of daydreaming, having a lovely, sunny Sunday at the lake. Stefan is drawing a picture of Charlotte, but when Charlotte asks him about it, he says that he was writing. But we know what's on Stefan's mind for real. Okay, good. I'm glad you caught that. I wasn't paying that much attention. Lottie goes for a swim in what I think is a very trendy and cool-looking turn-of-the-last-century bathing suit that would probably be coming back in style right now, but some posh university girls on the dock make fun of her. They say like, oh, you look so droll in your swimsuit, which is like, oh, you look so peculiar. And then they ask, where did you buy it? At a carpet shop? She gets a little bit miffed and and walks off. It's some class conflict. It's unfortunate for Stefan, though, because he had just asked her to go out on a boat rowing just the two of them. And it seemed like Charlotte might have said yes if she hadn't been directly attacked by those bitches. I don't know why this surprised me, but I was somewhat surprised that there were mean girls in 1929. There have been mean girls forever. Charlotte walks off scene, and we see Stefan playing a little game with some of those other university students at the lake. And eventually this game leads to Stefan showing them how he can lip read. Yeah, they walk far away from him onto the dock and say something at a normal volume to each other. And he's able to tell them exactly what they said. The first girl has a bit of a tongue twister about writing checks to people from Czechoslovakia. And the second girl notably said, why does Janneke bring proles to the club? Meaning proletariats, working girls. They are shitting on Greta and Lottie again. Mean girls. Mean girls. You can't sit with us. Through his binoculars, Stefan sees the real villain of the show, Rudy, walking up to the Lake Wansi Academic Rowing Club. He pushes over a dude. Rudy pushes over a dude who's in a handstand and is like, hey, sports fan. And he's like, pushes over a friend on his way up. Rudy rolls up to Charlotte and Greta and just puts his hat right onto Charlotte's head. It's fun. It's interesting. But as Rudy walks away into the water, Greta asks like, oh, who's he? And Charlotte just says, he's a nitwit. Greta goes on to ask, well, 
you know, do you, do you like him? And Charlotte's coy. She just says, well, why would you ask that? Like, why would you think that? Answering a question with a question. Very dodgy. Yeah, she just doesn't answer, essentially. Elsewhere at the lake, we see Fritz and are introduced to his pal Otto. Fritz, you will remember, was the newest communist on the block as he decided to join up during the May Day protests. In this scene, we see him discussing with his friend Otto notions of Leninist-style communist takeover. He mentions that mass execution is justified for pursuing revolution. Otto asks, oh, who, who says that? Hitler? And Fritz says, no. Vladimir Lenin. Apparently he's teaching his friend Otto about how to be a good commie. This scene ends with Otto and Fritz discussing something called expropriation, and we'll talk about that in the next Lake Wansi scene. But some fun notes about the filming of the scene, Leslie. Lake Wansi is an actual lake, two lakes really, in southwest Berlin, far west districts of Berlin. But this episode wasn't actually filmed at Lake Wansi. These scenes were actually filmed at the Hubert-Tolschen Palace Gardens. So the lake that you see here is actually Lake Starkau. Now, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, because I definitely did. (laughs) Also a fun note, in the beginning montage of the scene, you see some people playing volleyball outdoors at the Academic Rowing Club, which is just adorable. Volleyball was invented in the late 1800s in my home state of Massachusetts, and it would have made its way over to Europe in 1919 when the United States Expeditionary Force was shipped 16,000 volleyballs. And that's how it ended up spreading across Europe. Interesting note, Leslie, volleyball caught on big time in Europe amongst nudists. Especially in Germany. We don't see any nude volleyball being played here, but it is a fun nod to new leisure activity during the 1920s. Now, if you don't count Cottlebach's fart in one of the previous scenes, we get our first joke of the episode here. When Rudy jumps into the water naked, he says, ooh, it's cold. And Charlotte says, oh, like this much and holds up just a little inch between her fingers. And then he, you know, lets it roll off his back and says, hey, come in, you prudes. Yeah, in the German language version, he's like, come on in here, you church types. (laughs) Yeah. Church types and prudes, they're the same people. We will get to see Rudy's biological barometer of temperature in the next Lake Wansi scene coming up. And indeed, it was this cold. (laughs) Speaking of church types, in the next scene, we see Counselor Benda playing the organ in a church. This is the Catholic mass that he invited Gary and Rath to in a previous episode. While Benda's playing the organ, we see Garion walk into the church, make the sign of the cross, and take his seat in one of the pews. The scene cuts quickly to after the service when Benda introduces Garion to his wife, Ermgard. Now, Ermgard is a hardcore Catholic. You can tell. She asks Garion straight out the gate without so much as a hello if Garion found the mass to be uplifting. And Benda interjects that he better be careful what he says to her. <laughs> Garion says, oh, it's a little different than where I'm from, like being in Cologne, which might be a way of saying I haven't been to church in a long time. But Ermgard seems to brighten up at that. She says that both Garion and her are part of the Markish diaspora, which just means that they are both from Cologne, from Mark, which would be far west Germany, and that they are now both in the state of Brandenburg. And so they are from a more Catholic part of the country, and they're now living in a majority Protestant part of the country, she's saying, hey, you and me should be buds, fellow Catholic. And that sets up the fact that Benda himself is in fact Jewish. 
Yeah, this is where we find out that Binda is Jewish, married to a Catholic. They're about to go into confession, and Binda's like, oh, oh, I don't go in. The discovery <laughs> that Binda is Jewish in this scene makes his invitation to come to this Catholic Mass when he invites Garion all the more sly. He's inviting Garion to come do something that he himself doesn't 100% participate in, though, of course, he is a, a volunteer at the church to play the organ, I assume a volunteer. It's just, it's interesting. It almost seems like he's trying to bait Gary and into this very confessional scene that is about to occur. You that's think the so? Way, I don't know. Purposefully or otherwise, that's how it came off to me. Like, Bendo wants to see Gary and come clean, as if Benda knows that Gary and has something to come clean about. I'm not ride or die, Benda, but I do love, love, love Benda. I didn't really think about any ulterior motives here. I just thought maybe Benda wanted to get to know Gary and a little bit better and knowing that Gary was Catholic and his wife was Catholic and that he goes to Catholic Mass, he being Benda, that Gary might just like being part of a community. Although it, it could make sense because Benda is in, at least a little bit, on the porn plot situation. Benda has good intentions either way. Either way you read the scene, he he is on Garion's side. It was just an interesting reveal. Yeah. I like that you thought of it differently than me, though. That happens a lot. But it does show that Benda is a consensus maker. He's someone who is willing to bridge ideological gaps. And this is shown because he is married to a very devout Catholic. Clearly a devout Catholic. They're making it work. Exactly. They're making it work, and they have a cute little blonde daughter in the scene, too. After this, it's confession time. It sure is. Garion goes into confession looking very nervous. He's got some things to get off of his chest, and he almost walks out without saying anything like, I can't do this. I can't face whatever it is that's weighing on me. But he does eventually sit down and give his confession. The priest even gives him an out. When Garion stands up initially to potentially leave the confessional, the priest says, we will always be here for you. You can come back in the future when you're truly ready, and I will be here to listen. And Garion seems to think, I've got to get this off my chest like for my own personal health, and seems to like sit back down. Agreed. Agreed. I think he's just like, I... I have to do this now. This is weighing on me. I should tell somebody. And what is the big secret? The big secret is that he is in love with his brother's wife. The priest asks if this has led to indecent acts, and we fucking know that it has. For ten years, Garion says. It's a heavy burden. This reveals who Helga is. It's clear that Helga is his brother's wife. Location of the brother, we don't actually know. All Garion has said about him is that he didn't come home from the war. That's as far as we know. He's out of the picture. And we can surmise that from Helga's tone in the letters she's written Garion, that this is a mutual attraction, clearly. Yeah. But a forbidden one nonetheless. After Garion leaves his confession, Benda asks him, him or invites him to come over for like a Sunday coffee or tea back at his house later in the day. Gary doesn't necessarily want to go. He says, oh, I've, I've actually got a lot of work to do on a Sunday. And Benda says, well, I'm giving you the day off. Basically, come on, buddy. You're coming to my house. But before we see Gary meet up at Benda's, we're back at the lake on Charlotte and Stefan's quote unquote date. Back at Lake Wansi, we see Fritz and Otto swimming over to the dock where Greta is laying down looking at a magazine. They hop into a canoe and they're clearly going to commandeer it. They refer to themselves as the Sailors of Kiel, which would have been the sailors that mutinied against the German Navy at the end of the First World War, causing eventually the Kaiser to abdicate the throne and leave the country. Fritz and Otto actually sneak up on Greta and kind of startle her. They assume she's a student and she tells them that she's not and they start a little conversation about where each of them is from. They rattle off a couple of locations but we learn that Greta says she's from Dars, which is in the north coast of Germany. It's a coastal region near Denmark. And Otto says he's from Strasland, which is also in the north on the sea, although a little bit more 
east than Dars. The boys invite Greta to come out on the boat with them, and at first she says no. But they take off with her in the boat anyway. She jokingly shouts for help, and Charlotte walks out onto the dock to see if she's okay, probably genuinely, and of course she's fine. Charlotte just shouts to her, you're going to have to endure it, like the attention of these two boys. Meanwhile, a comedic diving frenzy ensues at the academic rowing club as all the posh students try to reclaim their canoe in some very unsafe diving conditions. It reminds me of like synchronized swimming or definitely movies of that era. And in fact, this scene at Lake Wansi is reminiscent of a 1930 film that we will see a clip of later in season one. So stay tuned for a future episode. Greta and the boys row away and then back at shore, we see Rudy come out of the water from his very cold swim, showing full frontal nudity. Rudy, nudie Rudy. Nudie Rudy! Oh my god. Nudie Rudy, the true villain of 1929 Berlin, Germany. That might, be, that might be the best nickname yet. Rudy walks right past a group of girls just hanging out on the shore. They're totally unfazed because, again, it's Europe and it's 1929. I feel like nudity is slightly more acceptable. They giggle a little bit. They do, but Rudy doesn't give a shit. Rudy wants them to see that day. That's right. He walks right up to Charlotte and lays down, and she asks him, Hey, you're a medical student, right? He's like, yeah, I, I study right here with Dr. So-and-so. She's like, oh, does that mean you cut up bodies? And he's like, yeah, actually, like, we do that all the time. That's basically all we do. I cut them up in my sleep is what he says, which is a weird thing to say, but <laughs> I think he means like, yeah, that I, I'm very good at it. Charlotte's like, all right, well, you and me are going to get up to a little something something later on, which is the most macabre kink pickup line I've ever heard. Yeah, she essentially asks to go on a date near or around the dead bodies that Rudy's so used to chopping up. She asks for help cutting up a naked body, and I'm sure Rudy hopes it's a date. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The scene at the lake ends here, and the following scene is Benda's so-called coffee or tea, which turns out to be a very large gathering, like a luncheon. Garion offers to help Benda's wife with the entertaining, because their maid was, quote, married off overnight. This alludes to the job that Greta mentioned previously in the Lake Wansi scene. She wants to be the Benda family's new maid, with her connections through Charlotte, and Stefan Yannick. But Ermgard says you don't unlearn this, meaning a lady always knows how to entertain, even if she has a maid. Yeah, she can handle her own house. The important part of the scene is that Benda has twisted Garion's arm to come over to the house so he can beat Chief Inspector Zorjabel, the head of the Berlin police. Zorjabel acknowledges Garion's father real quickly, and then before things get too pleasant, he says basically, I need that report from you about the Mayday Massacre. I need you to emphasize the fact that you were in a position of self-defense and being shot at. I expect that to be on my desk tomorrow morning. Now, Garion knows that writing the report in this way is going to be a lie. With that knowledge heavily on his conscience, he leaves Benda's house and decides to take a little detour to go back to Kreuzberg to attend the memorial for the woman who was killed on the balcony. As he rides the train there, he has flashbacks to seeing her shiver on the floor before she passed away. He walks up the steps in the Kreuzberg neighborhood and we get a glimpse of our favorite new socialist, Fritz. Now, the actor who plays Fritz cleverly makes a little French inhale cigarette trick right as the camera passes by him in slow motion. Watch that scene again. That guy knew what he was doing. Garion goes upstairs and walks out onto the balcony where the women were shot. He's told limp-wristedly by a little girl that he can't <laughs> be out there. <laughs> and he's like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> oh my god. 
He sees the bullet holes. He sees the police down on the street keeping tabs on this communist gathering. And you can tell he's having a hard time writing the report the way that Zorchabel wants it written. The evidence is just so apparent that the women were shot while standing calmly on their balconies, which he saw. While Garion's on the balcony, this little girl comes over and says, yeah, just like that, they were gone. They're dead. Now, Garion knows that all too well. But the little girl actually seems disappointed that there won't be a full-scale revolution as a result. She says, there won't be revolution. The party says no. It's cute that she seems a little sad about no revolution, but surely the writers put that in there on purpose to make the Communist Party in Berlin a little more sympathetic. Even though they were treated wrongly here, clearly by law enforcement, they are not planning a violent backlash. Which will be very important to remember in an upcoming episode. Yeah, keep in mind, the communists here aren't actually violent. They're being made out to be violent, but thus far in action, we haven't seen that. At some point in this memorial, Garion gets recognized as being a cop, and there's a little bit of an uproar as they force him out of the building. And it's actually Fritz who pushes him out the door. After Garion is pushed out of the memorial service in Kreuzberg, the camera pans over an opulent schloss or castle in the countryside as we hear horns blaring. It's none other than Alfred Neeson's house. Or should we say, Alfred Neeson's mom's house. <laughs> There's some weird pageantry going on, but during Neeson's dialogue, we learn that they're about to go on a hunt. Yeah, they're there for a traditional hunt. And the lady of the house is there, Anne-Marie Neeson. Or mom. Mother. She looks unhappy to be there. That's how I read things. Now, the pomp and the circumstance, the pageantry, if you will, of this scene, I actually really love it. And I'm sure the costume shop was just like ablaze with activity on that day. Because the uniforms worn by Major General Seegers and the military officials are really sharp. And also these traditional, like, hunting party outfits. And then Neeson's outfit is just ridiculous. <laughs> Neeson's wearing some Lord of the Rings shit. <laughs> the pomp and pageantry kind of makes sense. Not only is hunting, um, at least at this point in time, somewhat of a, a formal social activity. These are also high-status men in the government and military. Yeah, we get introduced to the two men of the hour, I guess, after Anne-Marie Neeson. First is Colonel Went, and Neeson says that he is the personal advisor to the president of the Reich, which would mean that he works directly for Paul von Hindenburg, who would have been the president in 1929. So this guy is both a colonel, probably a military veteran, and is connected at the highest levels of German government. The other important guest is Major General Seegers, who we've seen in a couple of previous episodes. He's the Silver Fox. Meow, 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 meow. And importantly, he's the person who Bruno was meeting with at the Cafe Jotzi in episode three. Seegers and Neeson, and Neeson's lackey, Wegner, are walking through the woods discussing the train. The train that we were told was full of pesticides, but it turns out is full of phosgene gas, a chemical agent that would have been illegal to manufacture inside of Germany after the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the First World War. It's important that nobody find that out. But Major General Seegers makes it known to Neeson that it's important for Alfred Neeson to make sure that nobody finds that out because all of his name is on the paperwork. Neeson is a bagman here. He's a patsy. He's like the mule carrying the drugs for the military. Everything rests on his shoulders, and if it goes bad, Major General Seegers will be nowhere around to take any of that blame. 
Leslie, you got to tell our listeners about your favorite part of this scene where Neeson and Seegers are walking through the woods. Yeah, my favorite part of this scene is what Dan is referring to now as Thwackgate. Thwackgate. Was it on purpose or was it not? You tell us, listeners. Email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. Leslie? So during this scene, they're walking along a wooded path, having this serious conversation about the phosgene gas, and Neeson walks directly into a tree. Yeah, during General Seegers' lines, Neeson is on camera and he walks so close to a tree that his shoulder just smacks it. Now, the Foley artist puts in a little thwack sound, so you might think, okay, that was on purpose. But the Foley and the sound design gets done after the filming is done. So was it on purpose during the filming for the actor to actually smash his shoulder into that tree? It serves the scene because it makes him look like an idiot. Like, he's in over his head anyway, and it makes it very clear. But no one in the scene acknowledges it, and even the actor seems surprised when he smashes into that tree. And so I can't help but think it was a happy accident that just got caught on camera. Yeah, he's either a great, great actor, or maybe it was planned. If it was planned, he played it off perfectly. If it wasn't planned... He played it off perfectly. Totally. Alfred Neeson, he might be a lackey. He might be a bad man, but he's a wonderful actor. I'm <laughs> impressed. And these things happen all, t- all the time on set. Accidents happen and you keep rolling and improv with it. So if no one calls cut, you just keep moving. You keep going. So you tell us, listeners, Thwackgate was on purpose. <laughs> After Thwackgate, Major General Seegers spots a doe across a field. He raises his gun. And in an overly dramatic scene, he decides it's a little bit too far away. And so he doesn't even pull the trigger until, bam, Colonel Went, of course, alone in the woods in the same field, fires on that doe from over 200 meters away and seems to have hit it directly. This scene is a little corny, especially after you watch it four or five times like I have, but it shows Colonel Went from left profile for a prolonged period of time. And I can only assume the directors do that to show you the big scar on his left cheek. It is a defining feature of his face, and it has led me to call him Scarface Chevy Chase. He looks like Chevy Chase. He's like a young Chevy Chase with a a giant scar. Mm -hmm. A little more on that scar in the Leckerbissen. I didn't know it when I first watched this show, but anybody in Germany at this time that saw a man with a big scar like that would know exactly where he got it from and maybe what kind of guy he is. Stay tuned for the third section of the podcast for more on Colonel Went. One more thing before that scene ends, Major General Seegers says that he is looking forward to Colonel Went's exercises later that day, and they don't mean physical fitness. Before we get to see what these exercises are, we're back with Garion at the police station writing this May Day protest report for Zorgeville. He first writes a draft of it that suggests that the communists fired first, more or less, but then he crumples it up and throws it into the can. Then the phone rings. Now this phone call is mysterious. When Garion asks who's there, all we hear is someone whistling a tune. Yeah, whistling a tune on the other end of the phone, and then Garion hangs up and picks up that one porn film photo he's been looking at since episode one and rubs his finger over the painting of that horse. Muti referred to it as the nag, the red horse painting. At first, I had no idea what the scene was about, but the very lovely Leslie Leake has dug in deep. I dug in deep because I had to know what this whistling tune was and whether it was going to be important to the plot or if it was just happenstance. I think that the tune that's being whistled is the German national anthem. 
it's a little bit hard to tell the tune because obviously someone cannot whistle a song perfectly, but I do think it is the German national anthem. And I'll tell you why a little bit later, actually, in the plot synopsis. Yeah, at the end of this episode, you hear the German national anthem a second time, and if you're paying very close attention to Babylon Berlin, that should tell you who is on the other end of that phone. One more thing about this scene, the typewriter on Garion's desk, it's a Klein Adler II. So Klein Adler made the first portable typewriter in Europe. And then in 1928, just one year before Babylon Berlin, they produced the Klein Adler Two, which had four rows of keys. The one used in this scene, I believe, is either a perfect replica or is an actual Klein Adler number two. They were produced in Frankfurt, Germany, or Frankfurt on Main, which is a place we went on our honeymoon. Cute little tech of the last century. Following this scene, we go back to the Nissan residence to see this military display, this exercise that Went has prepared for everybody. These scenes were filmed at the Drakenberg Castle or Drakenberg Schloss. Nissen and Seegers look over a hill down into the valley to see a huge mock-up of what I think is a town or a city square with thousands of men storming into it. It's not clear what exactly is going on down there. But Major General Seegers has let us know that it is both secret and he refers to it as Germany's great hope, or at least in his eyes, Germany's great hope. And he refers to it as Operation Prongertag. Which is a holiday, a Catholic holiday that will be coming up in June. So if you remember, this is Sunday after May Day. So this is probably Sunday, May 4th. So Prongertag, or Corpus Christi, the Feast of Christ, that'll be coming up in about one month. Whatever crazy thing they need poison gas for and thousands of men, that's coming up in one month. Dan, this poses one of the many questions that came up for me while watching this episode. My question is, how the fuck would Alfred Neeson not know that this military base is sitting in his backyard? Yeah, it's like within view of some of the towers of the the castle on the property, and it probably took weeks to construct this encampment. I can only imagine that Neeson spends a lot of his time maybe in an apartment or another home in the city in Berlin, and he's only at his family's country estate occasionally when he has family fancy boy hunting to do. Yeah, I would agree. I agree. I don't think his mom would let him be in the house very long. Seegers mentions in their woodland conversation during Thwackgate that Neeson has committed himself to the national cause. So I think him and his family, Neeson's family, have been donating money and the use of their property for quite a while to these right-wing interests. And it would make sense that this would be happening, like, on private land. Certainly for the plot of the show, it makes sense, yeah, to have it all be contained, private land that's connected to a character. We'll talk more about Neeson and his real-world antecedent in a future episode, uh, because there were quite a few rich industrialists who supported right-wing causes in Germany, but we've got too much plot to cover today. We'll do that in a future episode. When we leave Operation Prongertag, we go to Elizabeth Benka's boarding house. Garion comes home from the office and finds Bruno, of all people, in the boarding house talking to Benka. Bruno is consoling Benka because her husband, Helmut, this is the anniversary of his death. And apparently Helmut served in Bruno's regiment. Garion asks to talk to Bruno alone, and they go to Garion's room. Here, Garion finally opens up a little bit to Bruno and ends up asking for his help. He says, I need your help. Bruno says, Koenig? Meaning the porn plot case, the secret case, the reason you're here from Cologne? Garion says, yeah, we need to find Krajewski. He is the key. Bruno knows exactly where to find him. And the two cops drive off, despite the fact that Bruno did tell Benka he'd be right back. (laughs) Leaving a widow hanging on her husband's death anniversary. Dang. Cold, Cold. Bruno. Cold. (laughs) The scene changes to Krajewski in a sweaty, dank drug den. 
he is cooking up what is unmistakably heroin to feed his opiate addiction. Now, I noticed, Leslie, that he scrapes something off the wall in the beginning of his, you know, concoction for this heroin cook-up. All the research I did tells me that that wouldn't have happened. So heroin that you purchase in the modern day in Germany does need to be broken down with an acid before it can be dissolved in water. But back in the 1920s, that wouldn't have been the case. You could have just boiled up that heroin and water mixture straight away and injected it. But I have to give credit to the directors that the sort of four-ingredient mix that Krajewski puts together, including the wall scrapings, does sell the fact that he is in a dirty, dank, desperate space. Bruno and Garion bust in on Krajewski before he can actually shoot up the heroin and start to interrogate him. Garion's all hot and bothered. He smashes Krajewski up against the wall and he wants information now. But Bruno lets him know that they've got time and Krajewski doesn't. Bruno knows how the drug addicted work, and he suggests locking Krajewski up and sweating him out. Yeah, Krajewski isn't willing to give up information at first. He says, they will kill me. They, we know, is the Armenian and his henchmen. The plot twist in this scene is that when they finally do lock up Krajewski, Bruno Walter pulls out the glass vial, the glass vial from episode two that Garion accidentally, or excuse me, Charlotte accidentally dropped in the men's bathroom in the police station when she saved Garion from an episode. She later gave that vial of drugs to Bruno, and now Bruno is quite purposefully showing it off in front of Garion. He shakes it in front of Krajewski and says, when you're ready to talk, when you're ready to give us information, I've got this for you. Krajewski seems not the slightest bit relieved from that. He begs for something stronger. He has a serious heroin addiction. Since Krajewski isn't willing to talk, at least in this moment, they turn to leave. And as they do, Bruno puts this vial of drugs in Garion's pocket for, as he says, safekeeping, letting Garion know that he knows it's Garion's drugs. And to add insult to injury, Bruno says, oh, I thought this little vial is exactly what you shaking chickens need. And he makes direct eye contact with Garion when he says that. Brutal. <laughs> this sets up the confrontation between Garion and Bruno that happens right outside the police station when they're finally alone and can talk about it. Garion's obviously self-conscious now that he knows that Bruno knows about his tremors or his PTSD and his drug habit. Bruno snidely suggests that Garion might not even be in control of himself. Garion doesn't back down. He tells Bruno that he can make his own judgment call. He's seen Garion in action long enough to know. He asks, well, don't you think I'm a capable police officer? And Bruno, like a total dick, snidely says, oh... You're my favorite police officer. You're the best police officer. Give me a hug. And that's when the fighting starts. Yeah, Gary punches Bruno in the face and Bruno hits him back. It's a very gentlemanly fight, if I do say so myself. Yeah, they're not brawling. They're just getting their sticks in, their, their pent-up frustration with each other. Leslie, quick question on the personal note on the air. Have you ever punched someone in the face or received a punch to the face? Thank you for asking, but neither. I have been on both ends of that equation, and I would not recommend it under any circumstances whatsoever. Yeah, I could never be in a fight. Try not to be. I don't. I hope to never be in a fight again as long as I live. Mm -hmm. It ain't worth it, baby. But this scene ends with slightly more mutual respect between Gary and Bruno than when the scene started, I guess. But I'd say their relationship is rocky at best. Bruno says Gary is an idiot for not trusting him. And that sort of ends the the mini, the micro brawl. This is a big turning point for those two characters. So far, there's been nothing but mistrust between the two of them. Bruno says later in this exact episode, 
that he believes there is a mole within the police station who is spying on him, spying on Bruno. We don't know why he would be so concerned about that, but up until now, he believed that mole was Garion. And once he finds out that Garion's been acting a little shifty because he has his own problems, his own secrets, he eases up a little bit. Now we know who that mole is, and so does Charlotte Ritter, but that'll have to wait for a later scene. The next scene takes place at the train station in Kreuzberg, or as we learned how to pronounce it recently, Kralsberg? Kralsburg. 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 I don't know why you have to, like, get into a lower voice to speak German. Kralsburg. 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 Anyway, the train station. The Armenian and his men surround the transit police hanging out, guarding the trains at the train station. Kartikov leads some of the henchmen over to the train car that he believes has the gold in it, climbs on top, and starts to open the lid. Now, we know that Svetlana has already changed the numberings on the different train cars. So we as an audience know that this is not the train that contains the gold. So when Kartikov opens the hatch, it's poison gas that's inside. Now, up until this scene, We've been told that this is pesticides coming over the border, which would be poisonous, I'm sure. But later on in the same episode, in the autopsy room, we figure out there's something more to it. In fact, this is phosgene gas, weapons-grade chemical agent. Kartikov, in one of his many near-death experiences, managed to crawl off the top of this train car before dying. And as him and the Armenian flee, the one lone transit authority police officer who managed to pursue him gasps in asphyxiation and collapses, allowing Kartikov to leave and evade arrest. I've said it once and I will say it again. Kartikov is a kitty cat. He has nine lives. (laughs) I say it in episode five. I think of him more as the unkillable Russian Rasputin, but Kitty Cat also works. I'll go with that. The other part about the scene that confused me is, who the hell are these people guarding the train? They're not quite the military, because we see Major General Seegers approach these sort of, like, rail yard police in an earlier episode and has to pull rank on them. But they're not quite the local Berlin police either. The uniforms are very different. The armaments are very different. So stay tuned for the history portion of the podcast where we'll go into more granular detail about what kind of police, military, and paramilitary activity was going on in Weimar, Germany in 1929. After this, we meet back up with Rudy and Charlotte on what I'm going to consider their first date. Rudy is hoping that it's a date. Now, earlier, Rudy made it seem like he does autopsies all the time. This guy cuts up bodies in his sleep. He is a villain. (laughs) Or so he says, at least. He gets to work on the autopsy of who we know to be that Russian train conductor, the same Russian train conductor who hijacked the train in the very first episode of this season. It's Boris, the man who had his hands run over by the Russian ambassador. Now, first, Rudy has to let some of the gas out of the body, the gas that's accumulated. Because it's been floating in the Spree River. And it's decaying. That emits gas. Gross gross as it is. It's science. It is science. He pulls out the equivalent of a whoopee cushion to to sequester the gas as he's like puts a syringe into the body, which by the way, that is my mortal fear. Nothing scares me more than a syringe. I have to turn my head away when Kryevsky is about to inject his veins in the previous scene and I don't like watching Rudy shove this thing into a dead body either. But Rudy uses this whoopee cushion-esque balloon to capture the bloated gases from Boris's body. And then as he quite comically lets it go, it makes the characteristic (laughs) 
sound. Rudy, as a med student, knows what's about to happen, and he begs Charlotte to close her mouth. She has no idea what's happening. She's like, what? Gets one whiff of that decaying corpse and passes out. With another fun nod to science, Rudy awakens the fainted Charlotte with ammonium carbonate, smelling salts. And apparently she's glad to be revived and asks Rudy for a kiss. In what has to be the most unromantic first kiss scene that ever was. In a room that is rank with the smell of corpse. (laughs) Maybe that's Charlotte's thing. Charlotte has a macabre sense of horniness. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of cute, but this perplexes me probably most about this whole episode is why. In that moment, Charlotte wants a kiss from Rudy. (laughs) Hey, Charlotte's a sexual being, but I will say that up until this point, she has purposefully withheld her preference. At every turn, it's not clear if she has a real interest in Stefan. It's not clear if she has a real interest in Gary, and it's not clear if she has a real interest in Rudy. This kiss is the only clear, positive sign that, yeah, she has some attraction to Rudy. Beyond just using him to get into the autopsy room. (laughs) Although he is useful for that, in addition to telling the temperature of bodies of water. (laughs) He's got that built-in thermometer, you know what I mean? This man is a scientific apparatus and a villain. (laughs) God, I'm dead. But on to the important stuff from this scene. Rudy cuts out the lungs of Boris and confirms for sure that he's been breathing in coal dust probably for years. Rudy posits that he's either a rail worker or he works in the coal mines. Charlotte lifts up the sheet and examines his hands. They're pretty darn smooth. And she figures out that he must not be a miner. This guy is into trains. Before the autopsy can go much further, Charlotte and Rudy hear people approaching the room that they're in. So they go to hide in the place where all the dead bodies are stored. Classic. (laughs) Classic. So the pathologist that you might remember from episode four is coming back in late at night to perform some sort of services on the recently deceased railway policeman who was killed by the chemical agents in the previous scene. The pathologist says, I recognize these symptoms. He knows that this is a gas attack. Chemical weapons, not just pesticides. And importantly, Charlotte overhears all of this. So now she knows that it was chemical agents in the train and not pesticides. And she knows that Boris was a train worker. She is able to connect the dots and we as the audience are able to connect the dots. The train in Kreuzberg with the gold is the same train with these illegal chemical agents being smuggled into the country. This is undoubtedly the illegal chemical agents that Major General Seegers was lecturing our poor Neeson about in the woods when he smashed his shoulder against that tree. Thwackgate. Thwack. Just a quick recap on Charlotte's day so far. First, she went on a date or a not-so-date with Stefan at the lake. Then she goes on another date with Rudy to perform an autopsy on a dead Russian guy. Then we see her again in the next scene at the Mocha FD Cafe. As far as we know, she hasn't slept since this series began. (laughs) Before we see Charlotte at the Mocha FD Cafe, though, we see Bruno down in the basement taking a bribe from who I call the Black Widow. I might have made that up, but she's the madam of the brothel. He takes his money and heads on down the hall to Charlotte's room. We don't see what actually happens between Bruno and Charlotte, but in my mind, there is a sexual interlude off camera, much to Charlotte's chagrin, I'm sure, and then Bruno gets down to brass tacks. 
He's there for business. He wants something from Charlotte. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Like, I, I haven't made up my mind about whether they, like, sleep together or do something sexual together before he starts talking to her, asking her some questions and lamenting some of his issues. Because when you see them together, they are both clothed, but they are sitting down to a drink. But it does seem like almost a post-sex ritual. Those of you that watch this episode, tell me, is it absinthe, you think, that Charlotte is preparing for both herself and for Bruno, or maybe two glasses of it for Bruno? She plays is that metal apparatus on top of the glasses to dissolve the sugar cube as the, in my mind, absinthe slowly drips over it. Absinthe is the only beverage that I've ever seen that apparatus used in that way for. What do you think? Email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. Was it absinthe? They never mention it. While they're talking, Charlotte tells Bruno that she needs a clean record because she wants to join the police force. And he he doesn't even really snark at it, but he does tell her that if she wants a clean record, she's got to figure out who the snitch is in the police department. Now that Bruno knows it's not Garion, he's spreading his suspicion around to other people. He lets Charlotte know that whoever is spying on him was rooting around in his desk the day before yesterday. We know that that was young Stefan Yannick who foolishly knocked over the inkwell in Bruno's desk right before Charlotte came in to confirm their plans at the lake. Charlotte's eyes widen upon hearing this because although she doesn't mention it, she knows damn well that Stefan Yannick's life is in danger. In the final scene of this episode, we see Kartikov being tended to by the mysterious Dr. Schmidt. Once Dr. Schmidt is confident that Kartikov's condition is stable, he and the Armenian step outside of the room for a little sidebar. And Dr. Schmidt wants to know why the Armenian trusts Kartikov. And the Armenian says, I trust him. He wouldn't lie. I know him. This is a simple and quick explanation that furthers the plot, but it doesn't cheapen the story for me at all. I like the idea that the Armenian has known Kartikov long enough as a musician at the Mocha FD to know full well that he is a ride or die true-to-heart communist supporter of Trotsky. He's not the kind of guy who has ulterior motives, and he's not the kind of guy who selfishly wants this gold just for himself. He cares first and foremost about the communist cause, and the Armenian seems to respect that in him. As Schmidt and the Armenian are talking outside of Kartikov's room, we see some people start to gather, and one person begins to ring a bell as if to call this group of people to attention. As the camera pans over the faces of those that have gathered, we see very clearly that they are veterans of the Great War. We see skin grafts on their faces, limbs that have been amputated, and myriad injury amongst them. But they're clearly all all gathered in some somber way to pay attention, if not pay respects to, Dr. Schmidt, who seems to be their messiah. Dr. Schmidt takes sort of a place of importance. He goes up into a balcony so that all eyes can be on him. And for whatever reason, once everyone is called to attention, they listen to the German national anthem. Yeah, in a reverential way. Yeah. The episode closes here, but it's our first real hints at what Dr. Schmidt has directly in common with his partner in crime, the Armenian, and all of these men gathered, as well as Kryevsky, who features prominently in the end of this episode. Dr. Schmidt is a man who can, through means we don't yet understand, rid these veterans of their drug addiction and of their shell shock somehow. That seems to be the reason that the Armenian owes him so much, and the reason why all these veterans are gathering, maybe weekly, maybe maybe every Sunday night, here at this meeting place we don't yet know about, it is almost like a cult. It does feel very cultish. The national anthem for me ties in the fact 
that Dr. Schmidt is not asking these men to run away from their past as soldiers of Germany, but rather to embrace the pride in themselves of having served the German national cause. And perhaps there is a nationalist bent to both the Armenian and to Dr. Schmidt. That's not yet clear. But the whistling of the national anthem earlier on the phone was almost certainly Dr. Schmidt or someone doing it on his behest to call out to Gary and Rath. Wait, Dan, do you hear that? Do you know what that means? Ooh, is it time to gather around all of our handsomest and best-dressed friends so we can compare penis sizes in front of my mom? (laughs) Well, no, but it does mean that it's time to learn what the heck was going on with Germany's military during the interwar years. All right. So, Leslie, in episode six, we see right-wing nationalists, military leadership, and wealthy industrialists coming together to execute a sinister plot known only to us as Operation Prongertag. Now, the events of Episode 6 take place on Sunday, May the 5th. And Prongertag, or the Feast of Corpus Christi, this Roman Catholic holiday, is going to take place on Thursday, May 30th of 1929. So that's about three weeks forward in time from the events of the show. Now, we don't know what Operation Prongertag will entail just yet, but there will not be any spoilers in this history and context portion of our show because the real events of German history don't perfectly line up with that plot. But they're very much inspired by real-world interwar years right-wing ambitions to either overthrow the government or rebuild the German military or both. That's what we're going to talk about today. In order to understand why these groups of people would be coming together, you kind of have to understand the state of the German military in 1929. Following World War I, Germany was essentially forced to sign the Treaty of Versailles, and part of that treaty was the disarmament of the German military. And this was overseen by Allied forces. And there were a couple specific stipulations of the disarmament. So one was that the military was only allowed to have 100,000 sort of boots on the ground soldiers, and only 4,000 of those could be officers. They also could no longer have tanks or planes or U-boats, and they could only have a few small, pretty much useless naval ships. These stipulations were put in place, but the German government was doing a lot to sort of skirt around those limitations. So one thing I found was that even though the military was only allowed to have 100,000 people in it, those people were selected very specifically for certain skills and were then highly, highly trained. And in fact, when the German military were practicing their military exercises, they would be broken down into like units of about 300 people, but they were practicing their military exercises as if they were 3,000 people so that when the time came for their military to grow to encompass a million men, they would have been practicing as such the whole time. So the Reichswehr, or the German military in the interwar years, was operating like a small company that wanted to be ready to scale up the moment they could find the, you know, investment capital, if you'll pardon the metaphor. Other stipulations of the Treaty of Versailles also limited the amount of military training that could occur outside of the official 100,000 men in the Reichswehr. So they could not be training police 
and the police had to stay at pre-war levels, according to the treaty. And they could not be training even people like customs inspections folks. So we see in episode six, the people who are protecting the train cars, those are non-military personnel. And it kind of has to be that way by law. So they would not have received military training. It adds a little bit of extra humor and maybe explanation to the fact that all of those train guards just lay down their rifles and get down on their stomachs when the Armenians' men come in with handguns. The only other disarmament note that I would mention about real-life interwar years Germany is that so much of the fighting in the First World War occurred within France's borders. German troops were occupying huge swaths of eastern France and northern France, and that's where the combat took place. So German military industrial capacity was still basically intact after the First World War. That's why the Allied forces felt the need to really place crushing, truly crippling military restrictions on them because there was a fear throughout Europe that they could quickly rearm. Now, Dan, you just mentioned the fact that outside of the military, there couldn't be any other formal military training. So police couldn't be trained and so on and so forth, which essentially meant that there's no army reserves like we have in the USA today. But the German government had a plan. They had a backup plan for this because simultaneous to disarmament, all these World War I soldiers were coming home and maybe attempting to get back into daily life. But they had been former military who were now told that they could no longer serve in the military because of the reduction in its size. And this didn't necessarily lead to the formation of paramilitary groups, but perhaps like a renaissance or a revitalization of some paramilitary groups that had existed before. Yeah, there is suddenly tons of men with proper military training and probably combat experience who are freely ready to be recruited into existing paramilitary ranks, which would not have been officially on the books within the limit of 100,000 men in the official standing military. And I imagine that it's not only hard to just get back to quote-unquote daily life after serving in combat, but also Germans came home with still a lot of like national pride. So there would have been a lot of interest to maintain this forward momentum to a dominant Germany. Not to mention there were right-wing supporters of the monarchy. After the Kaiser abdicated the throne and, and left the country, that didn't stop certain people within German society and certain people within right-wing ideological circles from pursuing a pro-monarchist or pro-military dictatorship style future for Germany. Paramilitary activity is kind of like a foreign concept to me being a millennial in the U.S., but at this time and place, it would have been sort of a natural sequence of events for these paramilitary groups to become active or more active following World War I, not only because the veterans are coming home with all of this combat experience and nationalism and ready to do something for the cause, but also because they existed before World War I, so they were already sort of a part of society. And also because there were a lot of political parties and they were competitive in the German government, most of the major ones had their own paramilitary wings even prior to World War I. So as we mentioned, the Reichswehr, the official German military, was severely limited because of the Treaty of Versailles. But that didn't stop them from supporting extra-military or illegal paramilitary activity that would ultimately bolster their effectiveness. One big way they did this was by funneling munitions, weapons, money, and sometimes training to already existing private paramilitary groups. Now, on paper, these groups were not part of the 100,000-man limit of the German Reichswehr. But as we can see from history, sometimes these paramilitary groups 
were either called in to assist the German military or called in by the government to assist with attempted coups and to quell riots. We mentioned this in a previous episode with the Spartacist uprising in Germany that was ultimately put down by official forces with cooperation from Free Corps units. Now, the Free Corps is a tough thing to understand in modern-day America because we don't have anti-communist paramilitaries roving the streets, thank goodness. But Free Corps or Fry Corps units were various little militias all over Germany that were, very generally speaking, anti-communist in nature. They were willing to fight and kill for the anti-communist cause. A lot of these men had returned from fighting the Russian army that they now viewed as like the Bolshevik Russian communist army. And they were coming home to Germany with a very strong nationalist fervor and anti-communist bent. They generally aligned ideologically with pro-military interests and, and sometimes pro-monarchist interests in interwar years Germany. This kind of outsourcing of illegal military activity that would have gone against the rules of the Treaty of Versailles is sometimes referred to as the Black Reichswehr, which I always think of as like a shadow army. It's like the Black Army. And even though the term Black Reichswehr does not show up in the television series Babylon Berlin, this is almost certainly what we are seeing happen. Major General Seegers is directing some sort of illegal clandestine military activity in cooperation with Colonel Wendt and Alfred Neeson. We don't know a lot about it yet, but it is clearly off the books. This is Black Reichswehr activity. One example of Black Reichswehr activity can be seen during the Spartacus uprising of 1919 that we referred to in episode 3. So Free Corps units, these paramilitary anti-communist units, were called in to keep order in the city, in Berlin. They put down the uprising, and without specific orders from the German government or specific orders officially from the German military, these Free Corps units took it upon themselves to kill Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. To me, that counts as an assassination. And although it was, in theory, done to put down the specific uprising, it could also be seen as furthering the Reichswehr's ambitions and other right-wing ambitions within Germany by ensuring there would not be future pushes for a communist overthrow of the government. That kind of murky, quasi-official military action, quasi-private militia action is what we refer to broadly as Black Reichswehr activity. It's not official military policy, but it ends up happening in part because the military wants it to happen. It's akin to the United States CIA operations from the 1950s forward. In this specific example, I'm curious though, because the, the Freikorps actions definitely served the anti-communist agenda, which would have been, you know, an agenda of the Social Democratic Party. But I'm wondering, though, like, do you think that they were taking it upon themselves to kill their own personal adversaries or that there was like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge from the government to just like go ahead and take care of these guys? I don't know the real answer. And, and proper German historians may very well know where that came from. But I'm we are just using that one, you know, assassination as an example of ways in which the official Reichswehr had a reach far greater than the simple 100,000 men and 4,000 officers that they officially employed. 
they were able to call on large segments of the German population outside that 100,000 men to do their dirty work in an unofficial way that often took place through influencing, funding, arming, and training various paramilitary groups. Other than the Free Corps, or Fry Corps, one worth mentioning is Der Stahlhelm, which is just means the steel helmet. It came about in 1918, right after the First World War, and it was largely comprised of World War I veterans. You could see it as a World War I veterans organization. But they also operated eventually as the official paramilitary wing of the DNVP, the German National People's Party. Now, this party is never mentioned in the TV show, because there's too many German political parties to possibly mention. But they were a pro-military, pro-monarchist political party that almost certainly would have included people like Major General Seegers. And so former World War I veterans that were not officially part of the German military, they could still get in on that action via paramilitary groups like the Free Corps and Der Stahlhelm. In addition to limitations on the German Reichswehr, the official military, the Treaty of Versailles also placed limitations on German private industry. This is because private industry was largely building the tools used to wage the First World War. If the French delegation to the Paris Peace Conference got their way, Germany wouldn't be able to produce a single thing post-World War I. But cooler heads prevailed and understood that if German private industry was not allowed to thrive post-war, there'd be no way that Germany could ever succeed as a country or pay back their war debt to any of the European allies. Not to mention, if Germany collapsed, there was a lot of fear that they would simply become a new communist nation in the style of post-revolution Russia. So because of those fears, German industry was left largely intact, including chemical and pharmaceutical manufacturers, eight of which had joined together to make a super company known as IG, and then in 1925 became known as IG Farben. This included pharmaceutical manufacturer Bayer, that we'll very likely talk about in a future episode, about drugs. But the important part to understand about these limitations on private industry and the way it connects to Babylon Berlin episode 6 is that phosgene gas used in the First World War as a chemical weapon couldn't simply be outlawed entirely. The manufacturing of phosgene gas allows for the manufacturing of various other useful compounds in chemical engineering and pharmaceuticals manufacturing, things that are civilian use not necessarily for war. Before we started recording, Leslie, I was mentioning this paradox of trying to constrain German industry by comparing it to Iran's uranium enrichment program. Publicly, you say, hey, we're enriching uranium so that we can run a perfectly safe nuclear power plant. But unfortunately, those same enrichment techniques can eventually be used to create weapons-grade yellow cake uranium. So Alfred Neeson's character represents wealthy industrialists in Germany during the interwar years. He's a stand-in for many other people that really did exist and supported German rearmament. The closest real-world antecedent would be Friedrich Tyson, who we'll talk about in a future episode, but he was a wealthy industrialist who was a right-wing pro-monarchist and then later went on to funnel quite a bit of money to the Nazi party. I'm sure we'll talk about Friedrich Tyson in the future. But Alfred Neeson's cooperation with the Reichswehr and with Colonel Wendt, who seems to represent right-wing nationalists, possibly paramilitary groups, that fictional place plotline where the military, the industry, and paramilitaries all are coming together in some kind of sinister plot. Though that didn't happen in real life in Germany, it is so close to the truth and so compelling that I thought it was worth mentioning. 
So Neeson represents sort of the interests of industry men and businessmen during this time who want to continue making that money. Making that money while making guns and tanks and planes for the state of Germany. The same guns and tanks and planes that were used in the First World War made by the same companies that would go on, largely, to produce tanks and guns and boats and planes and weapons for Germany in the Second World War. So tell me, how did they get away with it if there was a restriction or limitation on what they could make? There were a lot of ways they did this. Some people brought their, for instance, aircraft-making companies just outside of the German borders. They could tell which way the wind was blowing at the end of the First World War, and they put a bunch of materiel on trains and just started producing aircrafts outside of Germany because you could no longer legally produce aircraft within the country. Other people just turned their industrial capacity to making civilian goods. It's not that hard to retool a factory that's making armored cars to just make engines and chassis for regular cars. But unfortunately, it's just as easy to retool that same factory and production facility into making armored cars again, which eventually did happen. The last thing I'll say about private industry is that in the real world, you could have got a hold of phosgene gas within Germany because it was still being produced by that, you know, mega company IG Farben. But it does make for a much more interesting plot line in Babylon Berlin to have them be importing this secretive weapons-grade poison gas from a manufacturing facility in Russia and Alfred Neeson sort of covering it up as his large company importing pesticides. It's definitely more interesting for the drama, even though some weapons-grade phosgene was being produced in the interwar years. While the term Black Reichsphere isn't used in the show, like you mentioned, Dan, these scenes we see of military exercises at the Neeson property, importation of phosgene gas, and even in a previous episode when we see a policeman distributing illegal arms to police officers, those are all just examples of Black Reichsphere activity that would or may have been going on in the time. So the right-wing nationalist plot that is starting to take shape in the show is borrowing from many elements of real history and real ambitions for industrialists and military officials to rearm the German state despite the signature of the Treaty of Versailles. At this point in the show, we don't know what Operation Prongertag is, but we do know that it's going to involve Colonel Vent representing right-wing nationalists, Alfred Neeson representing private industry, and Major General Seegers representing the actual Reichswehr, the German military. And if you think about it, this plot may also involve law enforcement. Because we know from a previous episode that Bruno Walter had a clandestine meeting with Major General Seekers at the Jotzi Cafe. What role he'll play on this is still unclear. So although this plotline is not directly based on a real-world historical event, it is very much rooted in the true ambitions of right-wing nationalists during the interwar years. I think that's such an interesting way to write historic fiction to play on the what-could-have-happened elements of people's real-world plans and ambitions that probably never came to fruition. We'll almost certainly see more Black Reichsphere activity in Babylon Berlin, but that's a wrap for what we've seen in Episode 6. And on that note, it is time to transition to the third part of our show— Leckerbiesen. Today for Leckerbiesen, we're snacking on the German national anthem, the story behind Colonel Wendt's facial scar, and German football clubs. Mm, I'm hungry. Let's get snacking. Es ist nur ein Traum, der 
So Leslie, in the Lecker Reason portion of our show today, tell me what little snacks you brought, because my mom made PB&J. <laughs> my mom made Chicken McNuggets. Oh, really? From McDonald's. Oh, you mean she bought Chicken McNuggets? No. Remember um, when your mom was like, we don't need to get Chicken McNuggets. I, we can make Chicken McNuggets at home. And then two hours later, your mom is like frustrated, pulling her hair out. She's like, God damn it, I wish we'd just gotten those Chicken McNuggets. I, I gotta, I gotta like give my mom some mad props though, because her Chicken Nuggets were a million times better than McDonald's. And we never went to McDonald's because she had the best Chicken McNuggets and the best French fries. I've got to give props to my boo. She makes these like breaded chicken cutlets that are better than Chicken McNuggets. They are like elite level breaded chicken. I've and heard she about makes them these. at home and they're good as fuck. I've heard about those. Never partaken. <laughs> Enough talk about food. Let's talk about the show. My first Lecker Beeson for you today is about the German national anthem. Ooh, tell me all about it. <laughs> I heard rumor from a little bird named Leslie that there were two different ones. There were two different German national anthems. I think someone growing up in Germany, this wouldn't be all that interesting, and I've never before been interested in another country's national anthem, but because it's very clear that the anthem has some kind of significance to episode six, it really piqued my curiosity, and I did a little bit of research, and it does have somewhat of an interesting history, so I'm going to share it with you today. Cool. Way back in 1871, when the different municipalities of what is now Germany came together under Kaiser Wilhelm. On my birthday, January 18th, Europe. Happy birthday! They needed an anthem, right? Well, because Wilhelm was from Prussia and it was kind of the dominant municipality, the nation adopted the Prussian national anthem. But what's interesting about that is that that song, which in German, I apologize in advance, is called Heil dir im Siegerkranz, which translates to Hail to thee in the victor's crown. It has the same melody as God save the queen, God save the king, and for all of you Americans, my country tis of thee. So it's like a rip on the British national anthem at that time. Yeah, it was like a cover song. Yeah, okay, so it was like Prussia and the German states in 1870 or whatever defeat Napoleon III, and then Prussia's like, how about our king of Prussia is the king of all of Germany? And how about our national anthem that we ripped off from England is the national anthem for all of us? And people were just like, yes. I don't even know, I like, I can't imagine that that went down well if you're trying to like build some like national identity, but whatever. They kept that same national anthem all the way up to the Weimar government. Okay. During the Weimar Republic, the Weimar government in Germany in 1922 is when they switched to what is their current national anthem. So in 1922, the Weimar government changed the national anthem from Heil dir im Siegerkranz to Deutschlandlied, which is very simply just Song of Germany or Song of the Germans. Cool. It does not have a recognizable melody to me, not like their old one did. So I don't know if this also was a cover song. I think it was an it was an original. Ooh, an original track. That's better <laughs> for Germany. Good on them. Yeah, probably probably better. And I think they were looking for a big rebranding after <laughs> losing the First World War. And they were like, yo, dog, let's roll out a new song. Very applicable. Rebranding, yes, you nailed it. What stood out to me is that the Nazi party decided to keep the national anthem the same throughout their regime. Because that was a major rebranding also. You could call it a rebranding, yeah. 
So the Nazi party kept the national anthem, but at that point in time, they were only really officially singing the first stanza of the national anthem. And I'm going to read it to you because it's going to stand out as to why they chose to only sing the first stanza of the national anthem. First stanza goes a little something like this, and I'm not going to sing it. Don't. (laughs) Good God, no. Germany, Germany, above all, above all else in the world, when it steadfastly holds together offensively and defensively with brotherhood. From the moss to the memel, from the etch to the belt, Germany, Germany, above all, above all else in the world. It's uber patriotic. Okay, cool. A little bit of nationalism in the first stanza of your national anthem. That's perfectly Makes fine. Sense, Makes right? sense. And you can see why, like, yeah, you could see why the Nazi party would be like, yeah, this is perfect. We are above all else in the world. What was interesting, though, is that at the time that this became the national anthem, those places that are mentioned, Moss, Memel, Etch, and Belt, would not have actually been in Germany anymore. They would have been kind of like in Holland, in Denmark, other outlying areas that did not get incorporated into Germany. Oh, so this anthem makes reference to like the greater German empire that post-World War I no longer exists in those terms. Exactly. Okay. Now, following sort of the fall of Nazi Germany, you would think that they would need a major rebranding. Yeah, I would think so. But no. <laughs> but no, they decided to keep the same the same song, the same national anthem, but they officially switched the the lyrics from the first stanza of the song to the third stanza of the song. And I'm going to read those lyrics to you so that you can maybe understand why. Third stanza goes, Unity and rights and freedom for the German fatherland. Let us strive for it together, brotherly with heart and hand. Unity and rights and freedom are the basis of good fortune. Flower in the light of this good fortune, flower, German fatherland. It's like way way more peaceful. A much more harmonious choice of lyrics, that third stanza. Okay. So in the modern day, that is the lyrical version of the German national anthem that you are likely to hear sung at a sporting event or something like that. Exactly. And when I was doing a little bit of digging, I can't speak to this personally. I do not live in Germany. I am not German. But I think the first stanza, it's not like officially banned, but it's very taboo. And if you were someone singing it associated with it, you'd be seen as very alt-right. Ah, so it's like carrying around a giant sign with the text of the Second Amendment with the Constitution written on it in America? Sure. Technically. Deep cut, deep cut. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, that's a document that matters, but the particular part of it you've chosen tells me a lot more about where you're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really all I have for you about the German national anthem. I thought it was interesting. It has somewhat of a sordid history. And so this is the anthem that we hear twice in this episode. First, whistled over the phone to Garion from some mystery whistler. And then at the very end of the episode, playing in this like veterans meeting kind of quasi cult like Dr. Schmidt seance that's happening. I don't know how to describe it, but it's the very end of the episode where you do hear the modern day German national anthem playing. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Leslie. You're very welcome. What you got for me, Dan? So I've got a tasty tidbit in three parts, and it's all centered around a character we get introduced to in episode six, a man that I'm going to refer to from here on out as Scarface Chevy Chase, Colonel Went. So in the hunting scene, when we see Major General Seegers lower his rifle because he feels that deer is too far afield for him to shoot, the man who shoots the deer is Colonel Went, and the directors are sure to show you the left side of his face 
for a long, goofy close-up where he's constantly turning and smiling at the camera and then turning to show the big, obvious scar on his left cheek. Now, the actor who plays Colonel Went, Ben O'Furman, he does not have that scar on his face. It's just added for the show. So I wanted to figure out what that would mean for someone in Germany. Because as an American viewer of the show, it didn't really tell me a whole lot about his character, but it turns out it probably signals an awful lot to a German audience. Definitely stood out, and we know that the writers and directors do everything very intentionally. Yes. So let's talk about, first and foremost, academic fencing. So this is not the kind of fencing that you would see in the Olympics or practice as an NCAA collegiate sport. That's more of a French modern thing. Academic fencing has its history in like 15th century Spain and is practiced throughout Europe in a kind of unorganized fashion. But then in the 1800s in Austria and Germany, there's a much more standardized form, like arranged duels between fraternities and and other gentlemen through these academic fraternities on university campuses. That's the kind of academic fencing that I'm talking about. It's not something that we have in the United States. So in the 1800s, in an academic duel between two men, and it would always be men in this case, it's like they have a disagreement or they need to settle a score or one man's honor is at stake or maybe there might be a woman involved. But this is how you would settle a dispute between two men. And you would stand a fixed distance apart with one hand, your non-dominant hand, like behind your back or grabbing your cummerbund or belt buckle. And then your dominant hand, usually your right hand, would have a very specific menser, like a sword, or a schläger, which is just German for a striker, a hitter, and you would slash at your opponent. So you would parry their slashes with your sword, but you weren't trying to dodge or evade anything. It was more gentlemanly to just stand there and bear it, you know, as you slash at their face and they slash at your face. And if you came away from the event, there wasn't necessarily a winner or a loser. It was just honorable to have taken part in that duel properly in the first place. So that That's why you would be left with these big slashes on your face. And through the 1800s, the kind of people who participated in this, and it continued on through the 1900s, you would wear that scar as a badge of honor. So that big slash on the left cheek of Colonel Went is there almost certainly from academic fencing because a dominant right-handed opponent would have slashed you on the left cheek. And Dan, you mentioned to me off air that the intention was to strike your opponent in the face, right? Yeah, they're slashing for the face. God. So if you see pictures of people, we'll definitely post some photos on Instagram. The men participating in this are wearing light armor. They've got a neck guard on and they're wearing like steel goggles, sometimes with a steel nose guard to protect certain parts of their face, but not the cheeks and the forehead. And that's where you're being slashed at. And you're not trying to kill anyone, necessarily, although I'm sure bad injuries happened. But in an official academic fencing setting, at one of these duels, each person, each combatant would have a physician present to tend to these wounds. And that physician might have the authority even to call off the duel at such a time that, you know, things have gone awry. This kind of dueling, just dueling in generally, truly blows my mind. Yeah, it's a pretty macho thing of a bygone era. But at this 
time in history, like 1800s and even early 1900s, dueling was practiced in the United States. In the early Americas, dueling was a huge problem. But similar to the kind of academic fencing that we're talking about now, sometimes just showing up at the prearranged time in an American gun duel, showing up to face your opponent was sometimes considered to be honorable enough to settle the score. It's not unheard of for a duel to be arranged and then for two gentlemen to show up and both of them to fire their gun into the air or into the dirt because they're not really trying to kill one another. They're just trying to call each other out. Now, that's probably best case scenario. There were plenty of people injured in in gun duels in the early Americas, and there's been tons of attempts to outlaw it. And similarly, there were attempts to outlaw academic fencing in Germany and Austria, as well as the kind of fraternities that practiced it. But let's get into that next. Okay. When you say academic fencing, is that because these fraternities or these groups were tied to like a learning institution? Yeah. So academic fencing is obviously just the English language way to describe it. There's a, It goes by a handful of names like Menser. But yeah, traditionally, this would be practiced on a university campus between student organizations. Verbendigund. I'm probably saying that totally incorrectly, but a student association, many of which were fraternities. And they were all men, so fraternal organization by default. But I want to talk about one in particular, Bergenschaft. So Bergenschaft is like an umbrella organization, and there were many chapters of Bergenschaft all around Austria and Germany. So if you went to university in Heidelberg, there might be a Bergenschaft there, and you could join up the way you would join a modern Greek fraternity. Now, these Bergenschaft were originally nationalistic in nature. In the 1800s, they were focused on bringing Germany together, fighting for a united Germany. But after the German states did unite in 1871, as you can imagine, there was a loss of enthusiasm and a lot of chapters lost membership because one of their biggest goals had already been achieved. But by 1890, there was like a so-called reform Bergenschaft movement where new Bergenschaft chapters were opened up and were gaining steam around the idea of a German national identity above and beyond just unifying the German states. And this pretty quickly led to Bergenschaft being associated with anti-Semitic ideas. By 1920, many Bergenschaft would not allow any Jewish members, or even a Jewish member whose fiancé had Jewish ancestry, for instance. And of course, there were some student organizations and some chapters of Bergenschaft that would have protested against this. But that's the period of time when our character Colonel Wendt would have potentially been a member of a Bergenschaft and therefore received a dueling scar through academic fencing at one of these fraternities. It would be during this reform Bergenschaft movement where they're becoming more nationalistic and more anti-Semitic. So I'm going out on a limb here because there's no clear evidence that he was a member of Burschenschaft. Could have been another student organization involved in academic fencing. But it kind of fits the bill for the nationalist people who are coming together on Neeson's property to discuss these yet-to-be-described military exercises. I think we need to keep our eyes on Colonel Wendt in part because there were quite a few prominent Nazis and other prominent Germans at this time who had big facial scars like that. One of which was Ernst Röhm, who went on to lead the SA, the stormtroopers for the Nazi party. It was the Nazi paramilitary. But I don't think Colonel Wendt really fits his character. Another prominent Nazi with facial scarring was Rudolf Diels. He was considered to be a young, handsome man with facial scarring from academic fencing, and he would have been working for the Prussian state police at this time in 1929, but he went on to be the head of the Gestapo in 1933 and 1934 during Hitler's early rise to power. I think that is who Colonel Wendt resembles the most, and Rudolf Diels might be the closest real-world antecedent for that character. So we've got to keep our eyes on him. 
If you're curious what academic fencing garb looked like or what these facial scars would have been like, or if you want to see why we think Colonel Vent is Scarface Chevy Chase, then check out our Instagram at the DL Presents. We'll also post a photo of Rudolph Deals to show you why we think he might be sort of the idea behind Colonel Vent. So my live-in lover tells me that he listens to our podcast episodes. I'm 100% confident that he does not, but he totally should. He would love this episode because I'm very excited to talk about football and soccer. Yeah, I'm sure all of our listeners are excited to hear about football. I hope so. Apologies in advance if not. So if you recall, at the very beginning of episode six, we see Samuel Cattlebach bust into Gary and Rath's bedroom one morning asking for a favor. And in return for that favor, he says Gary can go down to the ploop and watch Holstein Kiel play Hertha BSC. So what stood out to me, the name the ploop and the way Cattlebach says it like ploop. The plump. The plump. He, he does say it like the plump is a known entity and it's something that anyone should be excited about. Like the Met. Yeah. And it's just like the funnest word to say or hear. So I was like, what the fuck is a plump? The plump is actually the nickname for a soccer stadium in Berlin in the Gesenbrunnen neighborhood, which is in sort of the northwest part of Berlin. It actually borders on wedding or bedding. And this would have been the home stadium for the soccer team, the football team, Hertha BSC in 1929. Does BSC stand for Berlin Soccer Club? Close. It stands for Berlin Sports Club. So the name The Ploop came about because before there was ever a stadium on this piece of property, there supposedly was a water pump on the property. And in German, apologies in advance, this would be Wasserpump. And somehow that word just evolved into Ploop. So Wasserpump became The Ploop. Nice. Yeah. That's the way nicknames happen. It is. They don't have to be explainable. Yeah. So Hertha BSC and Holstein Kiel would have been real soccer teams playing at this time. And in fact, they're actually both still soccer teams in the Bundesliga in the German Soccer League today. Hertha BSC was actually founded in 1892, which freaking blows my mind that people have been playing soccer formally in national leagues for that long. But yes, founded in 1892. And Apparently, Hertha BSC was like a working man's soccer team. I feel like even today, soccer teams, like, some are working man teams, some are more, like, prestigious and, like, fancy. Yeah. Yeah. So this was more like a working man's club. And supposedly, the name Hertha was given just because one of the young founding members happened to have been on a steamship with his father that was named the Hertha right around the time that they were starting this soccer club. I mean, that's a better reason for a name than the Boston Red Sox. Yeah. I still haven't figured that one out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't even get me started. Sports team names are just, like, inexplicable. Where do they come up <laughs> with this Please send shit? all of your hate mail about sports teams' names to thedlpresents at gmail.com. Yeah, we'll commiserate together. Oh, no, I think people will hate us for not oh. knowing not knowing the story behind professional sports team names. I'm actually stoked on soccer. My live-in lover and I were supposed to be at an Arsenal soccer game next week, but COVID threw major wrench into that plan. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> All right, so back to Hertha BSC. Hertha BSC in 1929 was actually uh, an amalgamation, a coming together of two different soccer clubs. So Hertha joined with the Berliner Sport Club to become 
Hertha BSC. And in 1929, Hertha BSC was actually in the German football championship playing against a team whose name I just cannot say. I'll give it one go. Spielverinningungu. Sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. Sp- say it again. Spielverinningung. Spielverinningung. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, it, yeah, that's yeah. it, that's it, that's it. In 1929, Hertha BSC actually played another team in the German football championship, but they lost 3-2. to two. Mm. Sad, sad. Sad life. Now, the other team mentioned by Kattelbach playing at the Plump that day is Holstein Kiel. And, and that's the second reference to Kiel in this one, one episode. Yeah, Kiel is apparently a city way, 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 way up in the north just below Denmark. And very practically, Holstein Kiel is just the name of the area. Yeah. Yeah, that makes more sense. That's <laughs> where your soccer team comes from. Hertha. Yeah, exactly. So Holstein Kiel also was a real team. Apparently, right now, according to Google, they're 12th in the Bundesliga. Ooh. But it's pretty impressive, I think, that two teams founded in the 1800s. Technically, Holstein Kiel was founded in 1900, but they're still playing today. That is really cool. One other last little note is that the Plump is no more, and the site where the Plump was is now an apartment complex. Damn. Yeah. In the episode, Garion does not seem terribly excited at the prospect of going to a soccer match. Maybe he's not a sports fan. I'm not. Yeah, he does not strike me as a sports guy. He's also from Cologne, so maybe he has no real affection for the local teams. Yeah. If if Bundesliga, if German national soccer is anything like, like British Premier League soccer, like, your loyalties are for life. There's Hyper-local. no crossing over. Yeah. yeah. That's all the lecker scent I have for you today, Dan. That was delicious. Mmm. Mmm, the plump. The plump. Oh, I could go for a plump plump right now. A plump. I want the plump. The plump and zuashu stab are just things I repeat to myself daily. They're so fun. The plump. The plump. Thanks for listening to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you tune in on. If you like what you've heard, then you can slide into our DMs at the DL Presents on Instagram. And if you want to send us a hate mail, you can always email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. And be sure to tune in for the next episode where Leslie Leak will reveal her new secret talent. Tell me the only stop is sky.